Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Four candidates vying to be California's next U.S. senator met on a debate stage last night at USC. Three Democrats, Representatives Barbara Lee, Adam Schiff, and Katie Porter, and one Republican, former baseball star Steve Garvey, who, when refusing to say whether he supports ex-president Donald Trump, drew this from Porter. California, I think what they say is true. Once a Dodger, always a Dodger. But clear differences also emerged among the Democrats on earmarks, oil industry money, and the Israel-Hamas war. We'll go over all of it with reporters at the event. Join us. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Among the candidates competing for the rare open Senate seat last held by the late Dianne Feinstein, clear differences emerged last night on the debate stage. And not just between the lone Republican Steve Garvey and three Democrats, Adam Schiff, Katie Porter and Barbara Lee, but also among the Democrats. The debate was a chance for voters to learn more about where the candidates stand when it comes to the economy, climate change and the Israel-Hamas war ahead of the March 5th primary when voters decide which two candidates will advance to the general election. And joining me now to give us their takeaways, KQED Scott Schaefer, senior editor for KQED's California Politics and Government Desk. Scott, glad to have you. Hey, Mina. Also with us is U.S. Stella Yu, politics reporter for Cal Matters. UA, really glad to have you as well. Hey, thanks for having me. And we also have one of the moderators of last night's debate, political sen- Politico senior correspondent Melanie Mason. Hey, Melanie, it was great to see you on the stage last night. Thank you so much. Good morning. Good morning to you. So I want to get all of your top line reactions to start. What did you think? Who left an impression on voters for better or maybe worse? And of course, Melanie, I'll start with you, because from where you sat in the moderator's chair, I'm dying to know what really stood out to you last night. Well, I think the biggest headline for me was Steve Garvey's debut, right? I mean, he entered the race so late. He's not a politician. He's a baseball player. And so none of us had really seen him perform in this type of venue before. Mm -hmm. And so this was really the chance to see like, okay, this is your big debut as a political candidate. How is it going to go? Um, And I think that generally it was it was a rough debut, I think we could say for him. It seemed like he did not have a lot of specifics for the questions that we asked. And we did see a bit of a pile on effect, right, from from the Democrats. Uh, I think that what was interesting was to see like which Democrats chose to engage with him on, and on when. I mean, who wants to see 
Garvey advance, right? It's Adam Schiff. So watching Adam Schiff and, and Garvey go toe-to-toe was interesting and made me wonder sort of what the, the political calculation was behind that. But I think just in terms of the overall dynamics of the debate, it really was sort of watching this new guy on stage, Steve Garvey, and then these three very seasoned politicians react uh, react to him and, and really gang up on him at certain points. And Melanie, just remind us how Garvey qualified, how the candidates, those four candidates qualified for the debate stage, because I know Republican Eric Early objected when he didn't make the cut. Yeah, you know, I mean, so we have Politico and Morning Consult had a poll that we did in December. Um, and what we said was the top four qualifying candidates in that poll um, would make it to the debate stage. And so we saw those four. And when you saw the polling, you saw there really was sort of a cluster that those four had were within the double digit range um, and, and everybody else was clustered really far behind. And so I think, you know, every debate has to set its thresholds. There's two dozen people who are actually technically on the ballot for Senate, right? So you're not going to have a debate with two dozen people. You have to set a threshold somewhere. And for us, we saw with the top four polling candidates as the ones that really seem to have attracted the most attention from California voters and made it so you had a debate where you can have these exchanges. You know, the more crowded the debate stage, the more impossible it is to get anybody any sort of meaningful speaking time. And you, what were your impressions? You were there. You were at the debate. What did you think? Yeah, kind of piggybacking on what Melanie said. I mean, yeah, very much the focus was on Steve Garvey, you know, um, even coming into the debate. You know, I was chatting with consultants. I was chatting with political science experts and asking them what we could predict, you know, on how Steve Garvey does. And a lot of them told us, right, it's going to be a wild card. Um, He's kind of like a quote unquote black box. There's no expectation there, um, which should have, you know, made it uh, easy, I guess, going into the debate. Um, But, you know, this morning I was just talking to a USC professor who's actually there and he pretty much told me, you know, although he didn't have much expectation going in, he thought Garvey um, missed an opportunity to really um, cash in on the advantage that he was the lone Republican who made the debate. Um, He was there to have a chance to consolidate Republican voters, um, but he, you know, uh, he refused to give specifics, like Melanie said, on a lot of the issues that are kind of a purity test for Republican voters. They want to know how he stands on Trump versus Biden. They want to know um, how he stands on the abortion issues, right, at guns. And and these are some of the areas that he didn't, um, you know, I guess, capture the opportunity to really um, shine, to express his policy points. Uh, I want to say another thing that I want to note is um, the Democrats, who have been largely cordial um, in past forms and debates, uh, they have stepped up attack right? Uh, You see some of the name calling last night. Um, You see some of the, uh, you know, you see Schiff and Porter exchanging blows, right? Um, I think that's the effect of, um, you know, partly, uh, partly the effect of Garvey ranking second place in some of the polls. So now Porter and Lee, who are lagging behind in polls, want to use this chance to elevate themselves, to try to convince voters that they are different, um, that they are better than their Republican uh, opponent, that they deserve to go toe-to-toe with another Democrat in the general election. So I guess you see that a little bit. Um, But I will say overall, um, I think they still didn't do, uh, I guess, enough 
attacks on on each other. Um, you see Adam Schiff refraining from name calling Porter or Lee um, in, on multiple occasions. He said, you know, some of us actually get things done while others are sticking to talking points. You know, he could have um, called them out like he called out Garvey, but he largely refrained from doing that. Yeah. Well, Scott, what about you? Let's hear what you think in terms of how the debate went last night. And it sounds like Garvey really was the focus of the night. Do you agree? Yeah, well, you know, he was the one that we really haven't heard much from. He has been, you know, conducting a U.S. Senate campaign uh, sort of, uh, you know, in in the dark, uh, really not really on TV much, not doing a lot of interviews. But I think all four of the candidates kind of showed who they were. Adam Schiff really doubling down on his Trump slayer, uh, you know, the guy who's going to stand up for democracy. That's the lane he's in. Katie Porter really, you know, speaking out as someone who's going to tackle corporate interests and the lobbyists versus the people, uh, standing up for the people. Barbara Lee talking about her real life experience as a single mom, uh, someone who's had the courage in the past to stand up and vote f- vote against, for example, the authorization of use of power, uh, uh, war powers, you know, after Afghanistan and 9-11. And then Steve Garvey saying, I'm not a career politician, which I guess you could say, um, you know, whether that accrued to his advantage or not, I don't know. I mean, he is uh, really not a sophisticated candidate. He's no Arnold Schwarzenegger, who really understands and understood back when he ran the first time, um, you know, what policy and politics are about. Steve Garvey really had a lot of word salad. And I would say kudos to Melanie Mason for holding his feet to the fire when he said on uh, abortion, he would follow the will of the voters in California who are clearly more pro-choice. And then she said, well, what about on guns? And what about other issues like Donald Trump, where clearly you're out of sync with where the voters are? So I thought that was uh, Mm. that was a key moment there, too. We're talking about last night's Senate debate. And listeners, we want to hear from you. Did you watch it? What did you think of it? Was there a clear winner for you? Maybe it changed your opinion on any of the candidates or even who you're going to vote for. Tell us if it did. You can email forum at kqed.org. You can find us on our social channels, on X, Instagram, on our digital community. We're at KQED Forum. Our digital community is Discord. You can call us at 866-733-6786. Okay, so I want to dig into some of those exchanges, some of those moments that all three of you are highlighting. And of course, the one that really was one of the most tense was when the three Democratic candidates were trying to get Steve Garvey to say whether or not he would support or he supports Donald Trump, even vote for Donald Trump if he made it to the general election. First, here's Adam Schiff. Mr. Garvey, you won't tell the public whether you're going to support this man again. You voted for him twice. You saw what he did on January 6th. You, you have to see what a threat he is to the country. I can understand you don't want to alienate MAGA world by saying you're against him. But you also won't stand up to him. What more do you need to see of what he's done to be able to say that you will not support him? And here was Katie Porter. Ballots go out in six weeks, Mr. Garvey. This is not the minor leagues. Who will you vote for? Why is Garvey walking such a tight line here? Yue, I think you alluded to this, but what's behind the reluctance to speak on Trump, whether in favor or against? Yeah, that's a really good question. So, um, you know, and I chatted with some experts about this beforehand as well as um, as afterwards. Um, 
Garvey is refraining from associating himself with Trump because, you know, the polling shows that he, as of now, right, has a very good chance to advance to the general. And as we know, Republicans haven't won a statewide race since 2006. So if, if Garvey wants to stand a chance, he has to appeal to those no party preference voters, to independent voters who might not like Trump. But at the same time, you know, Trump still has a lot of loyalists in the state. Um, and, you know, it is almost impossible to try to avoid that topic, right? But um, he's trying to position himself as a, you know, quote unquote, conservative moderate, as we saw him talk about last night. And uh, of course, that kind of opens him up to, um, you know, attacks from Democrats, especially like Schiff, right? We hear him talk about, uh, you know, what Trump has done. And I think that's a, a strategy on, on Schiff's part um, for two reasons. Why? Uh, uh, one, um, he could, you know, elevate his own record as the 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 House Intelligence Committee, you know, chair to really take on Trump during the first impeachment trial. Um, you know, he has really made that one of the uh, priorities or one of the highlights of his campaign. So mentioning that. Um, kind of, you know, elevates mm -hmm. his own record. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, you know, if he can associate Garvey with, you know, this MAGA, uh, you know, movement, then he can probably convince Republicans to vote for Garvey and solidify his um, general election opponent, right, which could be Garvey. And then it would be a much easier uh, race for him to win compared no. to a dem on dem. Yeah, Melanie, we have about 30 seconds, but you also mentioned that you thought it was interesting that Schiff went after Garvey. Just tell us why. Well, I think that it, it is in Schiff's interest for Garvey to advance to the general election because Schiff is in first place. It's much easier to run against a Republican if you're a Democrat in a statewide race. Um, but I think that his calculus is, as opposed to kind of going hands off, is because Schiff is so reviled by these Trump voters that maybe by beating up on on, on Garvey, that actually makes Trump fans support Gar uh, Garvey and that could get him into the primary. So it's like a lot of four-dimensional chess that might be going on um, a little bit of jujitsu, perhaps. Um, and who knows, maybe it could work or not. But it's, it's as um, as you yeah. had pointed out, it's a very fine line that Garvey's got to walk. Well, we'll dig into more of the dynamics of last night's debate right after the break. You are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kib. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about last night's Senate debate among the top four polling candidates for Dianne Feinstein's Senate seat. The late Dianne Feinstein opened up the possibility for a rare open California Senate race. Representatives Barbara Lee, Adam Schiff, and Katie Porter were on the stage, as well as Republican Steve Garvey. Scott Schaefer is with us, senior editor for Politics and Government, co-host of Political Breakdown, USLU, politics reporter for Cal Matters, and Melanie Mason, senior political correspondent for Politico, and one of last night's debate moderators. You, our listeners, are also with us, and we want to hear from you. What did you think of last night's debate? Did it change your opinion of the candidates or who you're going to vote for? Did you learn something you didn't know before? Was there an issue or topic that you wish had been covered more or discussed further? You can call us at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. You can email forum at kqed.org or find us on our social channels at KQED Forum. Rich on Discord writes, all of the candidates have positive qualities. Hard to vote for just one candidate based on who has the likeliest chance of winning. I wish we could do ranked choice voting. Let me go to caller Dennis in Palo Alto. Hi, Dennis. You're on. Yes, I watched the debate last night. I thought uh, uh, Steve Garvey is an empty suit, and uh, it's a great advertisement for not electing uh, people who say I'm not a career politician, because it's clear that the three career politicians from the House of Representatives really understand the issues. I was very supportive of Adam Schiff, although I'd be happy with any of the three uh, candidates. But now I'm leaning more toward uh, Katie Porter uh, because of her consumer advocacy. But I do have a question for the political experts. And that is, what difference does it make which senator uh, you get? Uh, The difference between Schiff, Lee, and Porter is Porter said, I'm against earmarks. And I wonder if that means Mm. Katie Porter would bring less uh, money into California than uh, Schiff and Lee, who said we support earmarks. Yeah, Scott, talk about the earmarks issue. There was definitely disagreement, clear disagreement over the topics. Maybe also remind our listeners what those are. Yeah, so earmarks uh, have been around for a long time, and they're ways that lawmakers can put money into spending bills, budgets, and other kinds of bills uh, that are earmarked to a specific thing, usually in their state uh, or in their district, in the case of uh, uh, representatives. And they were banned for a while. Uh, Some people, including, I think, President Obama, saw them as just kind of pork, bloating up the budget, uh, special interests, uh, which is clearly what Katie Porter thinks. But they were brought back recently. Um, They're now more targeted toward nonprofits. uh, And they are, you know, I think there was a sense when they were gone that there was less collegiality, believe it or not, uh, in putting the budget together, that they actually helped grease the skids to get things passed. And so they are back in the budget. You know, to Dennis's question, what difference would it make? Um, You know, Katie Porter clearly saying that there's kind of an element of corruption in them. Um, But on the other hand, uh, you know, one U.S. senator, whether it's Katie Porter, Adam Schiff or anybody else, is not going to change that policy. Uh, This is something that uh, Mm. the Republican and Democratic caucus decides on uh, when they're putting the budgets together. Um, To me, it's a little bit of a head scratcher. I mean, it does distinguish her as maybe for, quote unquote, clean government. On the other hand, as Adam Schiff said, like, oh, boy, this would be great news for the 49 other states because you're leaving all this money on the table. California already gives more money in tax um, receipts to the other states. You know, shouldn't we be getting some of that back? So I do think that uh, to me, that's a little bit of an odd hill to die on for Katie Porter. Yeah. And I think it was Barbara Lee who said she thought it would be a dereliction of duty if she didn't do earmarks. Um, Where's our bacon? (laughs) Exactly. But Melanie, tell us, why is Katie Porter making earmarks one of her legislative priorities then? 
Well, because I think to to the caller's point, when these three Democrats vote the same way 90 percent of the time, they have to find any way to distinguish themselves. And I think that earmarks, yes, it's wonky. Yes, it's process, which, you know, we usually think that process stories, process issues sort of turn off voters. But I think it feeds into her larger theme, which is Washington works in a way that's dysfunctional. So I'm not going to work in that way. I mean, it was so interesting to hear somebody who is a congresswoman, has been serving in Congress since 2018, say, you know, that she was not of Washington, right? Kind of blast her two Democratic colleagues of being sort of part of the old Washington way, even though she sits in Congress. So I think that earmarks almost is a stand in for the larger question of like the old way of doing things in Congress, the dysfunctional way of doing things in Congress. Now, do I think that that really is going to stir voters? I agree with Scott. Mm. I think that it's going to be a real clearly. I mean, I'm guessing they have some polling or focus groups or something that shows that there is some way that this stirs voters in some way because maybe they pick up on this larger theme. But it is a little bit um, of of a wonky um, kind of how, how Bill becomes a law way of, of running a campaign. And who knows, maybe that'll resonate. Well, the three Democratic candidates did have some very clear differences on the issue of the Israel-Hamas war. And I thought the exchanges here were really revealing. I actually want to play a clip of Barbara Lee, who really stood by her position of calling for an immediate permanent ceasefire almost as soon as retaliatory strikes began. And she was essentially saying here that the only way Israel is going to be secure is with the immediate permanent ceasefire. Well, let me let me just say, first of all, I voted against the authorization to use military force right after the horrific attacks of 9-11. I voted against the Iraq authorization. I said then, and I'm saying now, it could spiral out of control. You see what's happening. It's escalating in the region. We have to make sure that uh, our national security is also protected. And in fact, as this war escalates, as the Arab nations pull back, then what do we have? We do not have a path to Israel's security, nor do we have a path to a Palestinian state. It will spiral out of control like I said it did and would after 2001, and it did. So, Lee, immediate permanent ceasefire. Adam Schiff, on the other hand, reaffirmed his opposition to a permanent ceasefire and uh, really reaffirmed his support of Israel's right to defend itself. Let's hear him here. No country, after having been attacked by terrorists like Israel was on October 7th, no country could refuse to defend itself. It has a duty to defend itself, and I think the United States should support Israel in defending itself. We also should work with Israel to reduce the number of civilian casualties, and my heart breaks uh, for all the Palestinians who have lost lives, all the families that have lost lives. It's not, in my view, incompatible with human nature to grieve the loss of both innocent Palestinians as well as innocent Israelis. Uh, I support a two-state solution. We have to get back to a road to two-state solution. But Israel has to defend itself. We can't leave Hamas governing Gaza. They are still holding over 100 hostages, including Americans. I don't know how you can ask any nation to cease fire when their people are being held by a terrorist organization. So, Scott, who do you think is more in line with the California electorate in terms of their position on the Israel-Hamas war? Yeah, well, among Democrats, they're very split on this issue. And I think both those cuts really speak to the voters that they're each trying to solidify uh, the support of. Uh, Adam Schiff, 
uh, is uh, very, his voters tend to be older. They tend to be a little more conservative or moderate. They tend to agree with him on this particular issue. Uh, They think they're a little more sympathetic with Israel than with the Palestinians. Um, But younger voters who are still very much on the table uh, and and up for grabs in terms of how they're going to vote on March 5th or up to March 5th, And I think Barbara Lee is the kind of candidate who can speak to them both on her real life experience, but also her position on Israel, which is to call for a ceasefire. She really has that moral compass and that moral authority, uh, that kind of reservoir of goodwill, I think, on these kinds of issues because of her history uh, of being the only person in the entire Congress to vote against authorizing the use of force in Afghanistan. So I I think that those positions that you just heard really speak to the voters that they already appeal to um, and or want to appeal to, uh, at least among those undecided voters out there. You had what was... Katie Porter's position. She called for a bilateral ceasefire. (laughs) What does that mean? Well, her her position has kind of shifted over the last several weeks on this. And, you know, I I thought Barbara Lee could have or somebody could have kind of gone after her on that, that like, where do you really stand? Um, You know, I think she did make the point that, hey, you can call for a ceasefire. Those are just words. It doesn't mean it's going to happen. And she is for a ceasefire under certain conditions, including the release of all the hostages. I mean, as I think the Biden administration is learning, you can't force Israel to do anything. Uh, There's all kinds of negotiations happening behind the scenes. You know, the fact is, no U.S. senator is going to determine how this war plays out and what comes next. Uh, but, uh, you know, the positions that they're taking and, you know, Katie Porter, I think, trying to struggling a bit with trying to find her lane on this. Uh, she's come down more on the Barbara Lee side, but she wasn't the first one there. And I think in that sense, you know, Barbara Lee kind of I don't want to say wins on this issue, but I do think that she, you know, she's clearly the person, if you support a ceasefire, if you're sympathetic with Palestinians, Barbara Lee's your candidate. And I think she was articulate in saying, look, if you, if you, for the, for the security of Israel, there must be a two-state solution. I think that was, you know, an important point that she made. Mina, can I just add real, real quick to that point, what Scott just said? Yeah. Something interesting, which was, she said, as Scott alluded to, ceasefire is not a magic word. But I think that one of the criticisms of her position is that she kind of is throwing in the word ceasefire as though it can sort of um, appease the folks who are calling for a ceasefire, but loading it with these conditions that would take so long to put into place that you're not going to see a ceasefire happen anytime soon. And so it was it was kind of an interesting like meta um, commentary on this debate that we're having where there's so much focus on this call for a ceasefire. But she herself put out this somewhat complex position where she calls for a ceasefire, but only after certain conditions are met. And I noticed that some of the reaction online right after, particularly from folks on the more progressive side, is they really, really were unhappy with this, with her calling ceasefire um, kind of a magic word and being sort of dismissive of that being the focal point of this conversation. So maybe a little bit of, of, I don't want to say hypocrisy, but, but, um, inconsistency on her part there. Yeah. And you and that was Melanie Mason talking, senior political correspondent of Politico. USLU of Cal Matters, you, as I understand her, Cal Matters spoke to Porter about <laughs> this after the debate, about the justification for taking this position. What did Porter say? 
Yeah. So um, she basically said, well, you know, the war had evolved and, you know, more as as the civilian casualties rose, I felt that this is the only way to move forward, which is really interesting because that was the first time that I actually got the chance to talk to her about that ever since she changed her stance. Right. She had initially called for a humanitarian pause, which aligned with what Schiff was saying, aligned with what President Biden is saying. And then, you know, she even went to the, um, uh, I think, the uh, McClatchy editorial board or a Sacramento Bee editorial board uh, interview when she said that I support a humanitarian pause. But a few days later, um, she released the statement. And I think when um, one of the newspapers was trying to reach her for comments, she or her campaign did not give any. And I um, meant to follow up uh, as well several times, but I didn't get that answer until yesterday. So, um, it, you know, the, the logic behind this, I guess, as some experts I've talked to pointed out, is that she might be trying to appeal to um, people who are not as invested in the Israel-Hamas war, um, who, who feel like something needs to be done, but maybe not a, a permanent ceasefire, uh, you know, nor humanitarian pause. Maybe that's something in between that they're looking hmm. for. Um, but in terms of how large that uh, group of voters are, is, I mean, no one really knows knows. Well, let me go to caller Ed in Palo Alto. Ed, you're on. Hi, thank you for taking my call. Um, Yeah, actually, uh, as part of the group, we interviewed both Barbara Lee and uh, Katie Porter. Adam Schiff didn't uh, didn't participate. And to be honest with you, I think you're focusing on the wrong thing. Um, Foreign policy is done by the White House. As far as um, Adam Schiff is concerned, I I believe one of the reasons he didn't participate was because he has raised a ton of money from large donors and from PAC money, uh, more than 50, 50% of his money. is right now number one in the polls, and that would definitely come up. And I, I'm not going to endorse anybody, but mm. I'm, definitely not gonna, I'm definitely not going to be voting for him. I see. Okay? Now, here's, here's, the, here, here's the other thing that is important. The top two running, one of them is a Republican, because all the Republicans are going to vote for him, and it's Adam Schiff. And there will be a runoff. We had two women senators, okay? And now we're going to go down to none. And that, I think the voters should take that also into account. Wow. Well, and thank you. You're being very determinative here. And I'm wondering, panelists, if you agree. I also do want to underscore Ed's point about Adam Schiff and taking money from big corporations and so on. That is a big line from Katie Porter. She particularly went after uh, Schiff for his ties related to oil money. And uh, let's hear a little bit of that. Representative Schiff may have prosecuted big oil companies before he came to Congress, but when he got to Congress, he cashed checks from companies like BP, from fossil fuel companies. I have delivered results on climate in my few years in Congress. I have raised the rate, my legislation to raise the rate on polluters when they drill on our public lands was signed into law. Real quickly, your chance to respond. Well, first of all, I gave that money to you, Katie Porter. Um, and I was I wasn't in office and, and when you only, were taking fossil The only fuels. response I got was, thank you, thank you, thank you. Of course, Melanie, that's Adam Schiff. They're referring to the fact that he supported Katie Porter's campaign. What did you think? Was that effective for Porter? Did Schiff effectively beat back that accusation? 
I think that this is a like TBD. I mean, I think there's more to come clearly on this type of exchange. They sort of like planted that seed in that exchange in the debate last night. And I wouldn't be surprised if we see um, that maybe appearing maybe in some ads coming up or maybe when they meet again in a debate stage in the future. So I think that that's still we're still yet to see how fully baked that sort of line of of uh, of attack is going to go. But it's so interesting because in some ways it feels like the two of them are running campaigns from from almost like very different eras. Right. I mean, this in some ways, Katie mm-hmm. Porter is running at a, a, a campaign of 2015, 2016 before Trump was president. It feels very akin to what we saw with Bernie Sanders, this sort of populist, anti-corporate, really looking at at sort of the us versus them um, elites versus everybody else theme of politics. And then Adam Schiff is running and everything is so centered around what American politics has looked like during and after the Trump years. And so in some ways, their 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 whole campaign messages are, are talking past each other. And it's interesting to see in these brief moments when they do meet and they're trying to sort of figure out how to poke at each other. Um, but their messages to the voters feel like they're in they're talking to distinctly different eras or distinctly different audiences. Interesting. And Scott, I know you were struck uh, by the animosity that you felt between Schiff and Porter. Was that really one of the first times that it became really obvious or felt for you? Well, I think Katie Porter probably feels she needs to pry some votes away from Adam Schiff. Um, and it, but I, I don't know what Mel thinks. You were, she was in the room, but you know, I, I did, I did sense that those two do not like each other. I mean, nobody really went after Barbara Lee. Um, but, but that exchange on money, I think was really evident of, uh, you know, just a lack of uh, warmth between the two of them. Uh, but I, you know, I also have to say that I, for all of the, you know, uh, experience that Katie Porter has taking on the, the the special interests, she also has not really gotten many endorsements from her fellow uh, Democratic caucus uh, members from California. I think only Robert Garcia from Long Beach has endorsed her. The rest have divided up between Barbara Lee and Adam Schiff. And I don't know what that says exactly, but one of the things you have to do as a U.S. senator is you have to build a coalition. You have to work together. It is a team, to quote uh, Garvey last night. Uh, you know, And I, I think that there are, maybe if there's a question about what kind of senator would they be, that might be one question um, of Katie Porter is how well does she play with others? Yeah, I, I did, um, yeah. Go ahead, sorry. U.S. Tell you. Yeah, if I can add, um, I, I think you know it's really interesting that Schiff's response to uh, Porter's corporate PAC money attack was, you know, I gave all that money to you, and all you said was thank you, because um, you know that is something that is very inside baseball. As political reporters, we know that, um, you know, from a campaign finance perspective. But for um, you know an average voter, they might not even know what that means, and they might just you know uh, understand that as Schiff, you know, throwing money around and that might not sit well with uh, with them according to uh, one of the people I talked to. So that that was very interesting to see. Mm, we're talking with US Stella U politics reporter for Cal Matters, Melanie Mason, senior political correspondent for Politico, Scott Schaefer, senior editor for KQED's Politics and Government Desk. And we're talking with you our listeners. Stay with us for more on last night's debate among the top four candidates for US Senate. I mean Kim Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. 
Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Democratic. Representatives Barbara Lee, Adam Schiff, and Katie Porter were on last night's Senate debate stage with Republican Steve Garvey. They're the top four candidates polling right now for Dianne Feinstein's Senate seat. And we're getting analysis and reaction to the debate from USLU of CalMatters, Melanie Mason of Politico, who was also one of last night's debate moderators, and also Scott Schaefer of KQED's Politics and Government Desk and KQED's Political Breakdown, co-host of that. You, our listeners, are also weighing in, Francis writes, there seems to be a lack of Green Party candidates. A lot of the constituents for this Senate district align with the ideals of the Green Party, but don't identify with them. Michael tweets, Barbara Lee is the Democrat with the most integrity, in my opinion, but I'm afraid she doesn't have a chance. I know nothing about Garvey other than he plays baseball. UA, one of the things that California voters always say when surveyed is that homelessness is a top issue for them. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how the candidates responded to this question, and also your thoughts on a very interesting exchange between Garvey and uh, Barbara Lee. Garvey claimed that he visited the, quote, inner city and spoke with and touched homeless people. (laughs) Lee took some issue with that. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Um, So, yeah. So first of all, in terms of policy issues, you know, we at CalMatters actually sent out questionnaires to each of the campaigns and received their response. You know, there's a very distinct, uh, I guess, split along party lines when we talk to them. You know, all the Democrats seem to agree that this is a housing issue, that the federal government should invest more money. Um, You know, some of them mentioned uh, they support fully funding the Section 8 voucher program, right? Um, Schiff, for example, talked about expanding the low-income tax uh, credit for more affordable housing projects. Um, When it comes to Garvey, um, for example, you you know, we actually um, uh, followed him on one of his homeless tours uh, as he toured an encampment in Sacramento. And when I asked him what his specific policies would be on homelessness, um, he he said, I'll find that out. Um, all he has said is that he wants a deep dive on accountability. He has said multiple times he wants to see where the taxpayer money has gone to address the um, homelessness crisis. But when asked for things that he would do differently, he has um, not offered any specifics. And so yesterday when he was talking about um, the homeless people, you know, he was using the 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 euphorism you know inner city um he he said i actually went out and touched them listened to them um and that drew a very sharp criticism from barbara lee who who experienced homelessness when um she was fleeing a violent uh, abusive relationship um she said you know she basically suggested that it was really condescending to describe people that way and yeah. then, uh, garvey responded hey you would do that if you really care <laughs> <laughs> well let's hear a little bit of uh, Barbara Lee's reaction. We have a clip of that. 
As somebody yeah. who's been unsheltered, I cannot believe how he described his walk and touching and being there <laughs> with the homeless. Come on, Mr. And Scott, that is one of the interesting things about Lee is she spoke frequently from a personal place, whether it be on being unhoused, having to have an illegal abortion and so on. Do you think she did enough? She was definitely going into it polling the lowest to shake up the the dynamics of the Senate race. Yeah, I mean, she's got a really strong and interesting biography. And, uh, you know, when she launched her campaign, she leaned into that a lot. She didn't do it as much. She did it some last night. Uh, but, you know, the whole one of the premises for her candidacy initially was that there were no black women in the U.S. Senate. LaFonza Butler is there now temporarily. But we didn't really hear any, uh, you know, making that argument uh, from her. There was the one caller who alluded to the fact we could go from two women to uh, to no women in the U.S. Senate from California. In terms of the housing and the, and the, the homelessness issue, and I'm really glad Barbara Lee said that because it, the way Garvey described it, it was kind of like he went to the zoo or something, like to go look at the homeless, you know, as opposed to really being steeped in the policy. There was some reference to Section 8 housing, but I'm surprised that even in the presidential election, there isn't more discussion of HUD, the uh, you know housing and urban development. That agency has been starved for federal funds under Democratic and Republican presidents for decades. And it's very difficult to get Section 8 housing, which is for very low-income folks. Um, and so there, I, I thought they, you know, it, it, maybe Katie Porter or Andrew, somebody could have made the case, look, I'm going to go back there and fight for more funding for, for HUD. Because if, if there is a federal response to homelessness, that's got to be a big part of it. Yeah. And, and Melanie, not just housing and homelessness, but if you want to talk about what your impressions were from the moderators share with regard to how they handled it, given that it is such a an, such an important issue to Californians, feel free. But the other one, of course, is abortion. And I do want to get into that as well, just because I think that that was also revealing, maybe particularly of Steve Garvey, but yeah, I mean, real quick on the sort of homelessness. I mean, one of the struggles with this debate, um, and you know, I know Scott having done these, you can you can sort of empathize with this, is that you want to have this balance between the issues that are at top of mind for Californians and homelessness and housing are what are the two at the top. But you know, those are issues that are really kind of almost best more fulsomely debated in a governor's debate or for mm-hmm. with among mayors. And so there's always this, you know, how do we address the issues that Californians really care about? But the truth is, is that when it comes to the federal um, you know, response. It is a question of maybe more funding via HUD and 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 maybe doesn't get down to some of the more vexing questions about homelessness policy that we debate here in California all the time. So it's it's that balancing act. And abortion's another one of those where it, it the the issue is is less about um well I actually I'm gonna take that back. The issue is very much about what their their positions are in the Senate because we can it very much pertains to the Supreme Court justices that the senators would approve, of course, which is what we saw when Roe versus Wade was overturned. Um, but again, I think we were trying very much in our questions to also just talk about like where these candidates are philosophically. I mean, they may not come up, they may not vote on a national abortion ban or on a national codification of Roe versus Wade, but where they are sort of in their gut on some of these issues and how they would respond vis-a-vis the voters. That's why we phrase the question to Garvey the way uh, we did, which is that he talks about being personally pro-life, but he also talked about wanting to respect the will of the voters. um, And that seemed like that was something in opposition. It's what I think yielded a really interesting exchange. Scott talked about it earlier about you know, where do you go when you feel one way as an individual, but you're elected to represent a group of people? Um, and if you are are there as just a pure sort of avatar for their um, 
for their desires, then why are you running as a Republican in a state that's overwhelmingly Democrat? Um, it's a it's a tough logic to follow all the way through. And that's why I found it to be an interesting exchange in the debate. Yeah, Katie Porter tried to pin Garvey down on whether or not he would support a federal ban on abortion. Let's hear a little bit of that. Look, abortion is a freedom issue. And no government that champions liberty and justice for all should restrict people from deciding for themselves if and when to have a child. And Mr. Garvey's party, the Republican Party, has said that if they win this election and control Congress and the House, they will pass a nationwide abortion ban. That will take effect here in California. So Mr. Garvey needs to be clear about where he stands on this and actually all the other issues. And Garvey, for his part, was saying that he would listen to Californians. But as we play a clip of him responding in that way, I do also want to highlight the fact that we include your follow-up question, Melanie, about his logic extending to other issues. Let's hear some of that. And I think I said that as an elected official, I will always support the voice of the people of California. And the people of California have spoken. And I pledge to support that voice. So to follow up on that, does that same logic then of supporting the will of the voters extend to issues like guns or even supporting President Trump, where California voters have made their views pretty clear? Well, I have my opinions, obviously. And with common sense and compassion and a, and a, a building of consensus, you know, I'll look at all the issues. I think I'm fair. I think the people of the state of California and the country, the millions of people that uh, uh, I've interacted with uh, over the years have taught me that it's building a consensus and listening. Uh, I have nothing that's truly etched in stone except uh, what is truly uh, right. Melanie, you want to talk about your re- reaction to that uh, comment? <laughs> it was, um, I, I, look, we knew that that, that, that the, the setup is, was tough. We knew that that would be a tough question for Garvey because it just gets at this question of, what are you running for? Are you running because you have a sense of, of 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 policy positions and philosophies and principles that you think you want to 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 carry out in, in Washington, or do you sort of just want to be a vessel um, for whatever Californians want? I mean, eventually, senators or representatives they have to make choices, and so I think what we wanted to do was say, like, what is your choice? I think it was a kind of a, a vague answer, um, but I think that it was kind of par for the course for this. This balancing act that Garvey is trying to to pull off, which is that he really thinks that that it's what voters are looking for are not these very precise policy prescriptions. They don't want this super partisan outlook for politics. I think that he thinks that maybe emphasizing coming together and being compassionate and and maybe we're a little hazy on specifics, but we'll get there eventually. Like maybe that's what people are looking for. And, you know, look, voters haven't voted yet. So that very well could be the case. Well, you had, do you think he's right? Do you think that that's effective? Do you think that the three Democrats will split the Democratic vote enough that he will have a chance to squeeze in there for the second place spot for the general? I think that that shall remain to be seen. Um, I, I, I do want to follow up on uh, Melanie's point. I, I, I think, first of all, really good job on Melanie's part to <laughs> to press him on that on, wow. on the specific issues. Right. And and I think his answers throughout the night really speaks to this this lack of specific policies. Um, I mean, to his credit, he did say uh, at one point that, um, you know, there he kind of suggested 
suggested or hinted at more policies rolling out in, you know, I guess in the coming weeks or even months. But, you know, as some people I've talked to have said, he really should have been talking to or uh, people were conducting these listening tours very early on. And if you're jumping into a race uh, late, you know, uh, in, in October, you should have really taken the time to study up and firm up your plans to even stand a chance in the primary. And I think, the, you know, these vague um, answers, I guess, Yesterday, we heard a lot about compassion, consensus building. That is the lane that he's trying to carve out. Um, but, you know, I, I, you know, as 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 one uh, strategist put it, I doubt, uh, quote, I, I doubt there is enough baseball fans in the state to really push him forward to advance to the general um, in the absence of these detailed policies. So I guess we shall see. <laughs> Yeah, I certainly had a similar reaction, Melanie, after that uh, response. When I wrote down in my notes, like, why is he running? The response to your sort of pointed follow-up question. And and I guess he says he's going to tell us more. Uh, so we'll, we'll see how that plays. We're talking with Melanie Mason, senior political correspondent at Politico, last night's debate moderator, USLU, politics reporter for Cal Matters, Scott Schaefer, co-host of KQED's Political Breakdown, and senior editor for our politics and government desk. And uh, you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Let me go to caller Peter in Florida. Peter, you're on. Hi. Um I'm 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 calling from Florida, but it kind of is a, a quasi national office. I mean, the, the senators, anyway. And I'm very interested. Barbara Lee, of course. I, I was thinking about this character. I mean, I think I think people should consider that you vote for character, not policy. Policies have to change. You know, there's a constant things keep evolving, and what you what you what you want is. The character. You can depend on someone's character. You don't know what details they're going to come across in office, but you know what their character is. So you got it. That's why I said Barbara Lee, from what she did in 9-11, she went against all the other senators. And But she's a person of character. Hmm. So rare. You're well, so lucky to have her. There's another listener, Peter, who I think agrees with you. The listener writes, as a progressive, my heart is with Barbara Lee, but my head is with Porter. Lee is my representative, but she's 77. Do we need more people older than 70 in the Senate? How much is this still weighing on Lee, Scott? On Well, I think it, uh, you know, given what happened to Dianne Feinstein, where she ran for re-election at the age of, I think, 80 six or 85. And we saw, you know, her decline. And it was, you know, it was very sad, but it made a lot of people angry. Also, a lot of Democrats were very unhappy that she ran again in 2018 at that age. Um, so I think it does give people pause, especially because, as the listener said there, there is an alternative. If you really want a progressive, you know, you could vote for Katie Porter. Um, but, you know, I think I think the caller, I think it was Peter, I think he makes an excellent point about character. Because, you know, you can say anything you want about any given policy. You're going to vote this way or that way, or you're going to advocate for this or that. But I do think what it comes down to is what kind of person are you? What challenges have you overcome? What are your, where's your moral compass? What are the things you won't negotiate over? What are the things you would compromise on? And I think that vote, though, it's hard to get at those questions. I think last night there was one question toward the end about who has had the biggest influence on you. That's the kind of question that could get at those sort of things. Unfortunately, um, you know, I think three of the four mentioned family members, and then Steve Garvey said Ronald Reagan. Um, but you know, I think that I think that isn't some a really a fundamental question: is who are these people really at the core? 
Yes, that is a fundamental question. Well, and then there's also the practicalities that our listeners want to get at. The sister wants to know, can the guests remind us what's likely to happen with each with each of the candidates' congressional seats if they win? <laughs> Scott, do you want to start? Well, the big one uh, that's up for grabs is Katie Porter's seat. That is a seat that has, is a, in a purple district in Orange County. Um, the person who she narrowly beat, Scott Baugh, last time a Republican is running again. There's some Democrats running as well. Um, it'll probably probably be a Democrat and a Republican in the runoff in November. But, uh, you know, Katie Porter had to spend millions and millions of dollars toward the end of the 2022 midterms in order to uh, hold on to her seat. So I think that's the only one that's really up for grabs. Barbara Lee is in Oakland. Uh, you know, that, that there's really no doubt that's going to stay in the Democratic column. Same with Adam Schiff. It's just a question really of which Democrat. There's a pretty lively race down there, but uh, there's not really much chance at all that a Republican is going to slip in there. But Katie Porter's seat, you know, there may mm. be, you know, end of the day, some people may wish that uh, she had not uh, run for the U.S. Senate and then try and Instead, try to hold on to that seat, if, especially if she doesn't make the top two. Yeah. And you, uh, Lee's issue also is that she's had difficulty fundraising. Can you just give us a quick overview of what people have left in their war chests, essentially, or who's in the strongest position with that regard? Yeah, for sure. So um, in terms of campaign finance, I mean, Adam Schiff, no doubt, has raised, uh, you know, the most and and um, his, you know, we, uh, I guess the, the last um, batch of campaign finance reports have not come out because there's still like about a week until uh, the candidates can, can file or like um, until the deadline for candidates to file. But so far, his campaign has reported raising 35 or Sorry, uh, reported entering the new year with $35 million cash on hand, which is a um, considerable fundraising edge over any of his uh, any of his opponents. And I think Politico reported that might be, um, you know, the most among any Senate candidate in the nation. Um, So he has a lot of money to burn. Right. And and we have seen him uh, starting to, uh, you know, spend on TV ad blitzes, for example. Um, He has reserved, you know, at least 13 million dollars worth of TV spots, you know, in the Bay Area and maybe station uh, statewide. And we're seeing Katie Porter do the same thing as well. But Lee has been struggling yeah. um, in fundraising and in polling as well, right? Well, um, M- yeah. Melanie, from where you sat, I just want to ask you, did he secure his lead, you think? Did he do enough last night to, to maintain that? Or do you think really it's now up for grabs? We just have 20 seconds. He didn't make any major mistakes, and I think that that's what he needed to do. It still remains a competitive race for second, and that's what I'll be watching over the next couple of weeks. Ooh, that's what we'll all be watching. Melanie Mason, thanks so much for joining us right after you came off moderating last night. Thanks for having me. <laughs> means a lot. Senior political correspondent for Politico, USLAU, politics reporter for Cal Matters. So great to have your analysis. And as always, great to have you, Scott Schaefer, senior editor for politics and government. You can hear him on Political Breakdown. Thank you as well to Mark Nieto for producing today's segment. Thank you, listeners, as always. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.